Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Merrill Matthews with the Institute for Policy Innovation, and today is August 17, 2023. And I'm joined today by John Early, who was the co-author of a book along with former Senator Phil Graham and Robert Eakland. And the name of the book is The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. And John has a statistical background. He is a mathematical economist who began working as a legislative assistant to Senator George McGovern and twice served as assistant commissioner at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And he also served in leadership positions uh, with others in global, he's a global consultant and with a number of companies. And so he was the sort of the numbers guy behind the new book, The American, The Myth of American Inequality. And we've got him on. John, thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here. Well, you you highlight, I, I believe your book is one of the most important economic books to have come out in a long time because you address some of the things that are the key issues in the public policy debate right now, and especially in the effort to try to increase government programs, government spending, and so forth. So tell me, how did you come, along with Phil Graham and Bob Eakin, how did you come to write this book? Well, the, the, th- the three of us uh, had sort of different paths to get here. And as uh, the, the culminating event was, I did a short paper for Cato Institute that uh, covered this topic generally and... Uh, Phil Graham saw it and said, gee, we ought to get ourselves together. And he and Bob had been talking about uh, possibly working on something because the three of us had observed in our various different capacities. All of the, We're all economists, but we'd served in different kinds of capacities, mm-hmm. but we'd observed the same phenomena that somehow the official statistics about poverty just didn't seem uh, to uh, to gel with the reality that we could see about us in other statistical series as well as just in everyday life. So what do we what do they mean when they say income inequality? What does that mean? Well, the the measure that's usually used in the United States and the one that's used to uh, support most of the political debate is measures household income through a survey called the Current Population Survey, uh, which every March collects data on income from the previous year, and then from about ninety thousand households, and then uh, they take and divide those responding households up into five equally sized groups in terms of households uh, that are called quintiles. So when I talk about a quintile, it's a fifth of the population. And so in the bottom group or bottom quintile, the average annual income, according to the Census Bureau who runs that survey, was around $13,000. And the um, income in the top quintile was a little over 200,000, but a little over 220,000. So, and the difference between the top and the bottom was a factor of 16.7 to 1. The top made six, had 16.7 times as much income as the bottom. And you can do a lot of different statistics around it, but it's that basic relationship that's been labeled by some to be obscene or immoral. Uh, and so that's, that's the number they say is too big. And how do they come about estimating poverty? So part of this has to do with the notion that we've got a, po- a large section of the of the population that, that's in poverty, and that number is growing, uh, according to some estimates. What do they mean when they talk about poverty? 
Well, poverty is based on the same set of data um, in terms of the income levels. And so for each, uh, it's a little different in that those who pay attention to the t details, poverty is done at the, at the family level rather than the household level. Not much difference. 88% of the one are the same as the other. But uh, So it takes the income of a household and it then compares, this is in the survey, and it compares that income to what are known as poverty thresholds, which were established back when poverty was first measured uh, as the amount of money needed to, make, to meet uh, basic economic needs for a family. And it, was, and it was done for 48 different sizes and compositions of families. And so the census takes the data in the survey, compares each of the, house, of the families in the survey with, with its corresponding you know, threshold. And if its income is less than that threshold, it, it is declared to be a poor family and all the people in that family are counted as poor. Now, we have done a lot in this country to transfer funds to uh, what are considered poor families, lower middle income families, and especially in since 1965 with the war on poverty under President Lyndon Johnson. Uh, I, I think your book mentions about some 100 programs. What are these programs doing? Well, yeah, let me give just a brief uh, history before that. Between 1947 and 1964, when Lyndon Johnson said, uh, I'm going to declare a war on poverty, poverty had already declined by half from, you know, around uh, well over 30 percent uh, to uh, only about 14, 15 percent. So um, we already had come a long way, eliminated half of poverty in the previous uh, less than 20 years. So uh, Johnson said, we need, we need to do better than that. And there's a lot of ins and outs around it, but a whole lot of new programs were instituted, uh, such as refundable tax credits, such as Medicaid, such as food stamps, that went then to lower income families to make up the differential between poverty and where their income happened to be. Now, one of the things that your book does, and I think this is sort of the key finding here, you, you've got a lot of information in there, you cover a lot of areas, but for me, the key finding was how you, how you di di differentiate what income inequality is from your method versus how it is done by the government. So when the government does this, as you mentioned, 16.7 between the lowest uh, quintile and the highest quintile of income, what is the government missing that you highlight? Well, there are a number of pieces, but there are two big ones that account for most of the, of the problem. The first is a government does not count two-thirds of what are called transfer payments. That is to say, money the government takes from uh, working uh, taxpayers and gives to people in, in low incomes. And it counts, for example, so... It, the, Census counts Social Security, uh, census counts uh, unemployment insurance, and three or four other major federal programs and a few state and uh, local programs. However, it does not count major income transfers such as refundable tax credits like the child tax credit or the earned income tax credit. Mm -hmm. And so that is money that if your credit exceeds your tax liability, which for people in the bottom quintile and much of the second quintile is the case, then the treasury sends you a check for the difference. In other words, that's cash on the barrel head, money, income, 
that should be counted as a transfer payment, but census does not. And same with food stamps. You may get a, a, a debit card worth $1,000 a month if you're a family of four or five, but yet you uh, that's not counted as income, although you can go to the grocery store and buy groceries with it. So there's, as I said, about two-thirds of those transfers are not counted. And the reason is kind of historical, and then after that it got to be just sort of stuck in the mud, if you would, is that when the programs were first designed, uh, the measuring to measure uh, poverty, for example, or to measure income inequality, uh, there were virtually none of these programs that are that census says are in-kind transferred. Well, there's nothing in-kind about a check coming from the treasury or a debit card that you can spend. But it's still nevertheless, because they didn't exist at the time they started the, the measurement, they just didn't add them to the, to the income. So as I said, about two-thirds of these transfer payments are not counted, and that is the biggest thing at the bottom end of the income uh, distribution. And there's a th- there's an issue at the top end too, isn't there? Yeah, that's uh, my next sentence. You're you're running ahead of me here, uh, because <clears throat> what census does not do is recognize the fact that people pay taxes, and in fact, most of those taxes you don't even ever see it. it does, it's taken out of your paycheck before you get it. The top quintile or the top fifth of, of, of households pay about 35% of their income in taxes. This is all kinds of taxes. Mm-hmm. Those at the bottom pay only about 7%. And so uh, this has not been adjusted for the money you lose to taxes. So now if you make both of those adjustments, add the missing transfer payments, take away the taxes, the difference between the top and the bottom is no longer 16.7 to 1, it is merely 4 to 1. Now, mm. you can argue about whether or not, uh, you know, a 4 to 1 difference is too much difference, but it's certainly a whole lot different than the 16.7 difference that uh, uh, the Census Bureau p- uh, publishes and that the politicians who want to transfer more money uh, use because they're, they're ignoring the transfer from the top to the bottom. So the key aspect here is that if I'm lower income, the government is missing a lot of of transfer of of money or goods and services that I get that isn't counted. But if I'm if I'm middle income or higher and I'm paying taxes, if I if I make one hundred thousand dollars and the government takes, let's say, twenty thousand dollars of that in taxes, that's money I don't have. I have $80,000 I can spend, but the government counts that that $20,000, even though I don't actually get to spend it. That's correct. And so when you do those two, you come to four to one, which is significantly different. And how does that compare to other countries? Have you looked at that? Uh, Well, yes. Uh, The OECD, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, has published some data around that, but it suffers from exactly the same problem on the transfer payments. It doesn't suffer so much on the tax end of things. And it's not because OECD makes mistakes. It's because that's the way the Census Bureau chooses to report it to the OECD. According to the official OECD publication that it gets by way of census, uh, the United States has more income inequality than any other major developed country, although not by much, but a little bit more than any of the other major democracies. However, you know, if you make the same adjustments to that international comparison that we made to the national data, then the United States winds up just sort of right in the middle of the income distribution inequality between Japan and Australia. Hmm. More equal than Japan, we're more equal than the United Kingdom, for example. 
So there is, you found another measure which sort of confirms this, and that's personal consumption. Could you explain that? Yeah, okay. Yeah, the Census Bureau publishes this income data that I've been talking about. When it goes ask people, how much money did you did you get? Uh, and for, neglects to ask them about all their transfer payments or how much they lost to taxes. But it all, there's also another survey uh, that's published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics that uh, ask people how much money did they spend on uh, goods and services. And if you look at that data, the bottom fifth of expenditures is twice what census says their income is. In other words, the bottom fifth of the, of the population is spending twice as much money as census says it's getting. Of course, that's a bit of a conundrum. You know, how mm-hmm. do you spend money you don't have? Well, it's because they don't count all their money. That's pretty straightforward. And on the other end, at the top end of the of the distribution, um, just a little over half, sixty some percent of the income there is, um, you know, is is spent because you don't you don't have the money to spend because your tax the taxes took it away. Uh, so the numbers that we come up with are consistent more uh, with that consumption data. Uh, so that tells us that uh, we're on the right track. In fact, that was one of the indicators that said, hey, something's not right here. And we were going to do the full research. You know, there was a we came we've come out of a pandemic. And in, during that pandemic, the federal government was it greatly expanded the money it was giving families across the country. And when things started opening back up, they were having trouble getting people to work. We were having a labor shortage there. And the discussion was, well, maybe all this extra money is discouraging some people from going back to work. Does all the transfer money, transfer payment money that we give people, do you think that discourages people from working? Oh, absolutely. And, um, and the, the uh, COVID thing was a little bit of a, unusual and that it was a yes. short-term uh you know emergency fast hit and so you could you could see the phenomenon but over the last 50 years if you look at the bottom quintile the bottom fifth of, of households um and you look at the people that are the economists call the prime work age folks as to say people over the age of 19 under the age of 65 uh who are not retired who are not full-time students uh and those are the people that you know, basically do work. And in the bottom quintile, 50 years ago, about uh, 32, 33% of them, two thirds were working. One third were not working 50 years ago. Today, it's flipped around. Two thirds are not working Hmm. and only one third are working. And so the the top quintile, of course, almost everybody works. Yeah, yeah. Um, So one of the things we're hearing from President Biden as he goes around and, and, uh, uh, boast about his Bidenomics is that the rich are not paying their fair share. Wh- what did you find with respect to the rich paying taxes? Well, of course, <laughs> people who make that argument never say, well, how much is fair? You know, do they want it all? Uh, uh, sometimes you wonder. I think the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in any case, uh, that's just not true. As I, as I said, from the data that we are able to get when the data I should mention, incidentally, are all 99.9% of it is data that comes from other government sources. So it's not like we went up and ma- went out and made up our own data. We used use other data that are there that uh, census does not use. But to uh, answer your question more directly on taxes. So the, the top quintile pays about uh, 35% of its income in taxes. 
And uh, the um, bottom quintile spends only uh, gets only about seven and a half percent of it taken away in taxes. And that's a pretty uh, consistent with other studies that have been done there too. Now, what, how in the world does <clears throat> President Biden or, uh, you know, uh, some of the radical left senators, where, how do they come up with their notion that people aren't paying their fair share? Well, there's been a, there've been some uh, papers published by uh, some other economists uh, that uh, are more political uh, screed than uh, than analysis, but they claim that the almost all Americans pay about 25% of their income in taxes. Uh, but those at the very highest level, the 400 richest uh, households uh, pay only about 23% of theirs in taxes. So uh, in a sense, uh, they're saying that, well, you know, the very richest are paying less. Well, that's just not so. And the reason being is that uh, this, this analysis does two things. First of all, just like the income, it doesn't count the tra it doesn't count any transfer payments. So if you pay uh, $500 in, in taxes and you have $1,000 in income, well, you paid a 50% tax. But your income isn't $1,000. It's $1,000 plus, on average, about $49,000 in transfer payments. So you're paying only about 5-7% of your income in taxes. So they don't count the taxes as a denominator, if you would, so you don't divide by that. And at the other end, they make up fictitious income among the people at the highest levels because they say, well, they get some other income that's not being counted here. And it's not income as you and I would understand it. They would call income, if you own a farm, uh, say a sector's, you know, size farm and you have, it's gone up in 10% in value, uh, you know, that's the market market price for it. They'd say, well, that 10% increase is, is income and you ought to pay taxes on it. So what are you gonna do? Sell the, uh, Northeast uh, 20 acres uh, so that you can pay your taxes because you, you can't ship the government, uh, you know, a truckload of, uh, of soil. You can't, uh, the same applies to your house. Uh, your house value goes up and this is before you sell it. If you sell those assets, you get paid, you pay tax on it, but they want you to pay tax on it or count it as tax, even if you don't sell it. And if you, and the point is you can't pay the taxes if you don't sell it. Um, and a few European companies have experimented with that kind of tax. And of course, it turns out to be an utter failure. And all but one have uh, abandoned that effort. So the point is, they aren't counting their taxes wrong, that we use the same tax data, they're counting the income wrong for exactly the same reason that we showed in the uh, case of income inequality and poverty. Hmm. Now, sort of the major point of your book is that the government, the Census Bureau, Bureau of Labor Statistics, and so forth, they're mischaracterizing certain data, not counting uh, income transfers and other things of that nature. Uh, is there a way to get them to change that? I mean, it, it seems to me if you if you had them change some of these things, it would it would fundamentally change the look of the numbers. Oh yeah, absolutely. And just to to, to be clear, we're talking here about. For these data, the, the thing, topic we're talking about here, right. principally, we're talking about census, uh, because it's the BLS that actually publishes the consumption data that tells us that uh, uh, that we had a problem. But that said, uh, yeah, you, you, there could be legislation. In fact, there has been some uh, draft legislation to get get them to straighten that out. But that's that's what it would take, because uh, at least the, the 
the uh, politicians currently in charge and the uh, general permanent uh, bureaucracy are inclined to keep it the same way. Are there any, uh, are there next steps to take to make that happen? Well, get a majority in both houses uh, that would uh, pass such legislation. The current, the current uh, setup wouldn't do that, I don't think. Uh, and get get a president that would sign it either that or get two thirds of both houses. It would be interesting to see how the left would push back against an effort like that, and I'm sure they would push back. Oh yeah, they, they, there there are lots of things they could say. You know, you're picking on poor people and so on. But the point is, the people that were poor 50 years ago are not poor today mm-hmm. because their incomes have risen, and it's just that the data haven't captured that rise in income. Hmm. Well, John, thank you for joining us on this uh, edition of the IPI podcast. Glad to be here. My guest for this edition has been John Early. He's the co-author with former Senator Phil Graham and Robert Eakland of the book, The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. We invite you to visit our website at IPI.org and to sign up if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new podcast content and events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform? You can also help sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of the IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.